0: Uh, To help me in this end, uh, I have prepared a bulletin for you inside. Uh, If you would take this out, this will help you to follow along with the sermon. You can take notes, you can draw pictures of me, you can have lots of fun in here. So, take this bad boy out, this will help you to follow along with where I'm going this morning. Even more important than having an outline of the sermon, you need the Word of God. I have not come here today to say anything of my own initiative. I've not come here to... Uh, you know, make anything up or be cute or, you know, I try. But you know know what I mean? Like, I'm here to drive you to the Bible. So God has spoken. He is not silent. Uh, You need not a fresh word from an anointed preacher. The word of God is plenty for us. And so my prayer this morning is that the anointing of his word uh, would flow and that what it is that I have to say to you would be from the text. So... You need a Bible and you need to have this bulletin and then it works wonderfully, okay? If you don't own a Bible, let me encourage you that in the bookstore they have awesome Bibles in there, awesome study Bibles in there. And I know how Hope Chapel rolls. They got those sweet paperback NIVs back there. Gank one um, on the west side. That's what it, Take one. I know stealing's bad, but just take <laughs> one and it's yours to keep. I have an old, tattered uh, NIV, Hope Chapel Bible, myself. I, I was tempted to preach from it this morning out of nostalgic purposes, but I figured it could fall apart while I was preaching, so that wouldn't be good. I'm going to pray because the author of the text of Scripture is alive. Amen. Insert amen. Um, you know, we're, we're, we have technological difficulties, but next time I'm here, I want red blinking lights that say amen at the appropriate places. <laughs> Even, even inappropriate places, what the heck, you know, that'll, that'll cover up for guys watching Laker games. They're like, yeah, I mean, amen, uh, you know, after, was it, was it last night? Yeah, I was getting like Laker reports, you know, I'm seeing guys' eyes go like, they're looking at their phones going, you know, I'm like, oh, it's not good for the Lakers. So <laughs> say a prayer for our LA teams for disappointing me. Anyway, um, let me pray. How about it? Should we pray? I like to pray before I eat, so uh, let me pray. Father, I thank you for the feast of your word. I thank you that you have not removed yourself. You are not a deadbeat, Father. You did not make the creation and leave it to itself. You have remained constant in creation with your presence... You have written your word in our hearts. Our conscience bears witness to you. The mountains, the skies, the creation, it all bears witness to you. The stars bring glory to you. And we pray that this morning as we spend time in your word that we would bear witness to you. That your heart would manifest for us. That we would get a sense of that A ...pulse that you have for us as your people, as your church, as your bride... ...that we would be washed in your word this morning to be prepared for the return of your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the anticipation you have given to us... ...that you have not left us abandoned, but indeed you will return. And in the in-between time, we pray... That we would be found faithful. That by your grace we would be empowered to reach the nations with the glorious message of our beautiful savior, you Jesus. And so as we sit before this word this morning, we pray that we would see you in it. And that we could step back, get out of the way and lay all of our stuff aside and just be enamored with you. I pray that the spirit of the living God would fall afresh on the text to illuminate here in this place. Jesus, we thank you that you sent your spirit to draw attention to you, that we could see you, we could see the father and we would just fall down before him. Father, we thank you that by the work of your son we are able to run boldly before you. And so now we run boldly before you as your children ...waiting for you to give us a story this morning from your word. We rest ourselves on your lap and we pray that your word would reign supreme in us. In the matchless, majestic, precious, most beautiful, treasured name of the Lord Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. I am Matt Jones. I am absolutely floored to be standing before you today. I pastor a church in Los Angeles. I hail from the West Side, uh, raised in Inglewood and Westchester. Not a beach guy. You know, uh, I I contemplated throwing on a Hawaiian shirt this morning just to contextualize. But uh, I'm I'm from another village and... Yet God saw fit to actually bring me to Hope Chapel to do some great things that I'll share with you. I've been pastoring in Los Angeles for 12 years. My ministry training began here at Hope Chapel 15 years ago. This church is a spiritual home for me. So it's just I'm just floored to be here. It's an utter joy, a sincere honor to stand Uh, in front of you today, to minister to the word to you, to stand aside you as we were led in worship this morning. It's an honor. It is a joy. Uh, In addition to being an honor and a joy, I, I just have to say it is a weighty responsibility as well to stand before you today. I have some big shoes to fill, and I want to say to all of you that you are a church that is blessed to have an amazing pastor and leader like Pastor Zach Nazarian. He is A great shepherd he has fatherly wisdom and childlike faith and that's an amazing combo I want I I just want to tell you to have childlike faith and fatherly wisdom is just a deadly combo for you to have as a pastor not to mention the sweet white hair that just makes him look awesome whenever I see Zach I'm like oh my gosh you're just like he's got the pastor look down I mean the guy is amazing I get together with Zach uh, uh, approximately once a month uh, for mentoring and just to have him watch over my life as, as a shepherd. And I treasure every moment that I have with him. The man trusts God. I mean, he just trusts God. He is in the middle of a storm, death knocks on his door, tragedy comes his way. And it's like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't flinch, he trusts God, he really does. He walks in trust after the Father. Your pastor leads you well, Hope Chapel, he leads you well. And I, I, I you, go ahead, yes. I, I stand before you as one who, apart from the sovereign grace of God, would be completely, thoroughly, radically depraved. And by the grace of God, God saw fit to bring me to Hope Chapel and, and break me down and only to, to build me up and send me out in the ministry. Indeed, he has sent us all out into the ministry. Uh, I, we are in this together. All, all, all of the local churches that gather in the name of the gospel. We are in this together. He's called us all into the ministry. Amen. Amen. So what I'm doing up here today isn't something that you are not doing in your, in your own life. At least it shouldn't be the case. We are all called to the ministry. But what I'm doing here today is just simply a, a function of my pastoral role in the body of Christ. Uh, namely, I, I've been called to minister the word to God's people. And so I'm standing before you today to do just that, to minister the word of God to you. And so you you need a Bible. You need to open it up and find your way into the New Testament to the book of Acts. That's where we're going to be this morning, the book of Acts. And before we jump into the ninth chapter of the book of Acts where we will be studying this morning... ...I want to take you to the first chapter of the book of Acts. And on your outline I want to give you some context. Context is so vital for us to understand the scriptures... And since I'm not with you week by week and we're not moving through the book of Acts, I need to give you context before I jump into the ninth chapter. One of my favorite New Testament scholars is a man named Dr. D.A. Carson. He's a world-renowned scholar, and he's got a famous saying about context. He says, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That, that is worth writing down. I mean, that line right there, solid gold. Okay, that's good stuff. We do not want to proof text the Bible. That is a pejorative way of saying you you, you are taking something out of context and and therein robbing it of the glory that God intended it to have. The word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, friends. Uh, But you completely remove its strength and its power when you take it to mean something other than what the spirit of God intended it to mean when it was written. And so we come this morning to the book of Acts and we got to get some context. So let's just start big picture here. Book of Acts. What's the title? What's the title of the book? Well, the title is the book of Acts, as you see on your outline. Acts was a a part of two volumes. There is the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. These two volumes together were an original single work uh, that were written by the man Luke, this historic figure that we'll talk about in a moment. These works make up one-fourth of the entire New Testament. So the the context that I'm giving you this morning is keen for you to understand a, a fourth of the New Testament. These two volumes, as you see on your outline there, they originally are one work. Uh, The theme that ties these books together is the theme that the title itself bears, that is Acts, not A-X-E, like chopping wood, but Acts, A-C-T-S, Acts. You have there on your outline, I raised the question, Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit? Uh, Most English translations of the Bible, the, the book is called The Acts of the Apostles, Uh, This title is not original to the ancient text that we have... uh, ...but the title is appropriate in that it is about the Acts of God. Uh, Of the twelve apostles that Jesus uh, commissions to go into the world... ...of of those twelve that we meet at the beginning of the book of Acts... ...of those twelve, roughly three of them are, are main characters in the text of Acts itself. So if we were to call it Acts of the Apostles... ...we might just call it Acts of some of the Apostles because... You know, the other nine don't get much of a, of a show in it. Nevertheless, the role of the apostles was to build the church. They founded the church. Uh, the Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2 and the churches began. So the book of Acts gives us the history of the church. So it's very much the acts of the church, the acts of the apostolic church. But the author is keen to show us in this text that the all, all credit goes to God, uh, Namely, the third person of God, as Christians, we believe God is Father, Son, and Spirit. There is one God in three persons. Christ sends the Spirit to inaugurate the age of the church. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is alive and active in the church... ...for the glory of the Son unto the glory of the Father. And so this text is very much about the acts of the Holy Spirit... We might just say that the book of Acts is about the apostolic church and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through them to reach the nations with the gospel. The author of this text is none other than the historic figure Luke. He was a convert to Christianity early in the first century, a part of the community that had eyewitnesses of Jesus in it. You guys have many church or growth groups you know, you, you gather together in smaller groups and you, you talk about scripture. You can imagine being a part of a community that contained in it people who were there. You know what I mean? Where you're like, oh man, it must have been amazing when Jesus was walking on water, no way. And someone's like, I was there, check it out. Here's how it went down. You should have seen it, it was crazy. You know, like you, that's gonna kill, you know, mini church every time because you're like, ah, well, he was here, just you talk because you were there. You know, so it was amazing time ...to be in the church where you have eyewitnesses around. And so Luke is a part of this community. He knows eyewitnesses. He's a keen researcher of these eyewitnesses. He identifies himself as an author in the text. The ancient histories that we have of this confirm him to be the author. Luke, uh, by trade, was a medical physician. He worked at Kaiser Permanente of his day. Um, I was born at Kaiser. Whoop So uh, love him, love him. Uh, Now I got a weird HMO, but whatever. He's a medical physician. Uh, Ancient medicine and science were highly sophisticated. It required great intellect for the practitioners of, of, of science and of medicine in the ancient world. And so as a doctor, Luke would have been an intellectual. It's no wonder that he was drawn to the Apostle Paul, who was a great intellectual. Which leads to the next point on your outline. He's a spiritual apprentice of the Apostle Paul in the city of Troas, where they encounter one another. ...and he travels with him uh, in the ministry of the gospel... ...which was convenient for the Apostle Paul... ...who's always getting beat up and stuff. You got a doctor who's traveling with you. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like, fix this. I got, I got hit by some pagans, you know. Um, he's an academician. He's a pastor. He's a traveling evangelist. He's an historian. He is a martyr. It would be quite the Facebook profile, you know. I mean, wow, you're all those things. Luke has great sophistication in his writings... Um, I've, I took time in grad school and undergrad to study uh, Greek. Luke, uh, Luke was, was tough reading. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a genius dude. He's a smart guy. He writes with the precision of an ancient historian. He, in fact, includes medical phraseology in, in his writings. I mean, the, the, the quill of this man was, was brilliant. He writes this text somewhere around 60 to 62 AD. Accordingly, the place of writing would have been in Rome... Uh, we get this date because uh, we place his, his writing in scholarship before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, before the apostle Paul's death, which traditionally is dated somewhere around 66 to 68, since the text of Acts ends with uh, Paul still alive. This would be before the Neronian persecutions in Rome, which are dated around 64 A.D., which brings us around 62 AD. We see in Luke's writings that he is familiar with the gospel of Mark. He references the gospel of Mark which we would date around 62. And so this gives us this approximate date that you have there on your outline. All of this to say, this text that you have opened up your Bibles to. Friends, this is incredibly historic stuff we're dealing with. It's, it's authentic. It's, it's, this is the real deal. This isn't the knockoff stuff. This is the real deal. It is attested, you see on your outline, by early church documents. Um, most early, Justin the Martyr writing in 140 AD. Irenaeus references this text in 175 AD. Clement of Alexandria in 200 AD. Tertullian in 200 AD. Origen in 250. Eusebius in 350 AD. On and on and on to Pastor Zach Nazarian in 2012 AD. You get the idea. This text has been with the community of the church with the annals of history ever since its inception. The manuscripts on this text are absolutely compelling. Here's a picture, in fact, of the Papyrus Bodmer, uh, which gives you the ending of the Gospel of Luke there. If I had a PowerPointer in the time, we could circle the Greek and we could show you that in fact that the ending of the Gospel of Luke, if I took you to it, Uh, In the first volume of these two volumes you would see that what you have in front of you today in your English translation is what you see in the manuscript in front of you today. This manuscript dates to the second century. Friends, the veracity of the scriptures is absolutely real. The notion of the skeptics that the Bible has been translated and translated and translated. And it's like the telephone game. You know, there's little Billy over here and you tell little Billy, hey, uh, you know, the Kool-Aid's on top of the refrigerator at uh, Sarah's house or whatever. By the time it gets all the way to the end, a little Jill, it's not about Kool-Aid or Sarah or anything. It's, I don't know, it's about Pokemon or some weird thing. I don't know. You know, you know, you know, telephone uh, and a bunch of kids and, and they just change it because as the message goes from one to the next to the next, it changes and, and you know, I mean, didn't you see Da Vinci Code, right? It's awesome scholarship and uh, I read it online somewhere. It's in a blog, the Bible. It's been translated and translated and translated. You can't trust it. Have you heard that before? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I, I want to let you know that that is the, the height of ignorance. Uh, you, you have in, in front of you Papyrus Bodmer, okay? You, you can go to the museum, you can see it. You can take out Gospel of Luke. You can look at the text. You can see, not translated, translated, translated. One translation from here to here. From, from what's on the screen to the Bible that's sitting on your lap. One translation. It's not telephone game stuff. It's, it's not uh, this kind of nonsense. In fact, it's a whole academic discipline of textual transmission. When people say that to me, I love it, because I like to ask them, oh, you read Greek, I didn't know. Oh, that's awesome. I, I'd like you to look at this. And, you know, and they're like, I don't read Greek. Oh, you've studied textual transmission at least. What are your favorite manuscript traditions? Um, I, I haven't done that either, you know. Well, then, then on what basis do you make this claim that the Bible's been translated and translated and translated? Um, da Vinci Code, you know. <laughs> oh, that's right, Tom Hanks. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. If Tom Hanks said it, you know, it's got to be real. The manuscript evidence is strong for the text in front of you. The historical facts are compelling. There are no historic reasons for doubting the account that is in your hand. Anyone who dismisses it is not doing so on academic grounds. The author Luke is martyred in Greece. He is martyred in Greece. As a part of the eyewitness community, this is absolutely compelling. You understand that people don't die for things that they know are not true. Oh yeah, sure, there's martyrs all the time. There's, there's people who strap bombs on their chest and walk inside of malls and blow themselves up for some prophet who, who, who lived 1,500 years ago who they never saw, who left no manuscripts, who left no evidence, but they're just taking it to be the case. Yeah, sure, there's people who die for things, but they don't know whether or not they're true. There's people who put on the Nikes, drink the Kool-Aid, think they're going to land on the Comet. I mean, yeah, there's people who do this kind of stuff. Of course, there's people who do this kind of stuff, but not people who were there. A part of eyewitness early community do this kind of thing, because people do not die for things that they know are not true. You know, if I'm going around telling people I'm an alien or something, and I manage to get a little following, and we drink the Kool-Aid, and we got our little Matt Jones cult group going or whatever, and, and the FBI gets a little scared, and they're like, we're going to crack down on this. And they take out the scalpel and they're going to cut me open and see my alien insides. I mean, the second the knives come out, I'm like, I was just kidding. <laughs> you know what I mean? i got to die for something I know isn't true. You know, what is going on here is you have a man, Luke, who has come to Christ and is a part of this early eyewitness community of people who are eyewitnesses of these things. And he gives his life for this. And the manuscripts testify to this and the history backs this up. Jesus Christ of Nazareth really lived, really died on a cross, really rose from the dead, really ascended into heaven and is really coming back. We're not making this stuff up. This stuff really happened. And what you have in front of you today is a history of this and it's really true. It hasn't been translated and translated and translated. It has come to you pure. And so you, you have this in front of you. And so when you study the Bible, you should be thinking to yourself, whoa. That's what you should be thinking is, 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 is whoa. You think with the mind of the greatest experts of all, of all time. And you come to these conclusions. I want to submit to you what the Guinness Book of World Records lists as the most successful lawyer of all time. He's a man, Sir Lionel who rather dapper isn't he you got you know you got to admit if that's your Facebook profiles you know you're doing something right look at he's got all the badges and stuff he's knighted twice uh, by the Queen Elizabeth that's pretty awesome a distinguished diplomat a justice on his country's highest court he's a, a brilliant legal mind he succeeded in getting 245 successive murder charge uh, acquittals by January the 1st 1985 the guy was a, a legal genius He was able to examine evidence and come to true conclusions and when he applied all of his legal genius in working with evidence to the question of these texts and the history of the resurrected Jesus Christ of Nazareth, here's what he concluded. He said, and I quote, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. You see, when you come to church, you haven't checked your brains at the door. You, you haven't. In fact, you've got to put your thinking caps on when you come to church because what it is that we're doing is we're investigating historic texts that come to give you the goods of the gospel. This story, this story that you have in front of you today, the world's most successful mind that deals with evidence says there is no room for doubt on these things. I ask you to turn to Acts chapter one and when you look at verse three, you see the ancient historian Luke describing what it is that he's doing. He says in verse three of chapter one, what? He, referencing Jesus, Jesus, Acts 1-3, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. I love the NASB translation. It says, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is not, I saw, I saw Biggie and Tupac at the mall. This is not, I saw Elvis. Okay, some of you guys get that one. It's not, you know, I saw the Mother Mary on a Dorito chip in South America. This is not that kind of thing. This is 40 days, Jesus appearing. These are not, you know, psychological manipulations, uh, conspiracy theories, care bears, unicorns, sasquash. It's not that kind of thing that's going down. We're dealing with history. And so the ancient historian Luke says, I'm giving you the the, the proofs of this. I've, I've come to give you the proofs. He hasn't come to give you warm, fuzzy feelings inside. He's giving you the proofs of this. And what the ancient historian Luke tells us, modern historians confirm. I quote to you a noted historian at Western Michigan University, Dr. Paul Meyer, who wrote, If all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research... To conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter, and no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, archaeology that would disprove this statement. This builds in me, I don't know about you, but this builds in me a kind of anticipation when I come to the text of Scripture. You know, a lot of people, they, their, their Bibles are kind of collecting dust, let's be honest, and they actually believe the Bible. But I take the time to give you this historic context because what it does for me is it kind of stirs this sort of edge of the seat kind of experience where I begin to realize this is really real. This is really, really, really real. I mean, this is, this is real stuff. We're constantly bombarded in our culture by those who are jaded and skeptic with regard to these things and you may be influenced by you know, uh, uh, such a thing. But I'm here to let you know at the level of evidence in history, this is what it is. And so what we're reading is really real. But Luke hasn't aimed just to give us a slice of history. This isn't, you know, Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. This isn't just a history lesson. He has a purpose in this. And the purpose is the gospel. Uh, So the purpose there on your outline, we will note from the history that Luke entrusted this work to the Roman figure Theophilus to advance the spread of the gospel. The good news that Christ died for sinners... Think about that preposition for. It's a loaded preposition. For. That is for you. As as in for the preposition as a gift. This is for you. I got this for you. It's a gift. This is a gift that Christ is giving the gospel. For. This is the message. It's for you. A gift. That preposition for also is used in language as substitution. Christ died for sinners. That is to say he took the place of. He took the place of. You know the proverbial, I was gonna get hit by the car, and the guy pushed me out of the way and got hit by the car. Took the place of, took what was coming my way for me, took what I deserved. He took it upon himself. The whole dying on the cross thing, that that's what I deserve. I deserve to have the wrath of the Father on my back, but the Father, the Father, the Father saw fit to pour it on the Son. He died for sinners. For as a gift, for as a substitution, for you and I. And Luke aims to give us this history to to show us the gospel. And to show us what the gospel did in birthing the church and spreading this message into the ancient world. Look, you're in the first chapter of Acts. I drew you to verse 3. Let me draw you to verse 8. Here you see the linchpin of the book of Acts. In fact, the book of Acts is really organized around this verse right here. They are told you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The apostles are told you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts follows this outline. It it, it moves from the gospel coming, Acts 2, Pentecost, in in Jerusalem, and then spreading to, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, reaching all peoples to the glory and praise of the God of Israel. This book records how these followers go on their mission You have there on your outline a really pregnant purpose statement there for you to have in your personal studies as you think about this book. Luke is writing for us a focus history because there's lots of things that he could have written about in the early church. So he's giving us a focus history to strengthen believers by recounting the powerful beginning of the church by the Holy Spirit and its expansion... The church in a hostile world as God sovereignly and graciously brought salvation to all people through the gospel of the historic and resurrected Jesus Christ. You see those concentric circles in this little, graph, this little graphic that I have there on your outline for you to, to, to convey to you that the gospel's spreading. The gospel would move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It would move from Hermosa to Manhattan to South Bay to to L.A. to 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 California. It, it, it's spreading. It's it, it's growing. I have a graphic here of 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 a map of the ancient world, so you can just get yourself wrapped around this spreading motif. And it is worth noting that this uh, ends of the earth is unfinished, is it not? Is it not? As many as twelve thousand distinct cultural groups around the world remain unreached. The Book of Acts is a book that that hasn't ended. This book is still going. It's still alive. It's still going. In fact, the Book of Acts kind of has a, a sort of abrupt ending to it. It's just kind of like, oh, what happened? Ah, oh, you know, it's like a soap opera or something. Dang it, I don't watch soap operas. I don't know why I said that. But you know, it's like Something you watch that you're excited and goes to commercial. I mean, Acts has gone to commercial in in a sense, but it's still this thing that is continuing. You're like, yeah, right, you know you do, you're fronting. But anyway, 12,000 distinct cultural groups around the world remain unreached, having no church in their language, in their culture. And so now I bring you to Acts chapter 9. I've given you a bit of the history, tried to show you that this text indeed is, is a really real text, that history, comf- uh, history confirms it, manuscripts attest to this, that what do you have in front of you, this is this real business. And so as we're coming to it, we have this sense, this awareness that, mm, yeah, this is awesome. In fact, let me put before you a, a, a picture of Acts chapter 9. This is a manuscript of the very passage that you are in right now. Uh, this is a third century papyrus fragment. Uh, scholars, we reference this as P53, Um, It's very very fascinating stuff for you to see. Now I'm intentionally taking you to Acts. On the inside of your outline I'm going to give you three broad points. Ananias' mission, Saul's mission, and Christ's mission. I am taking you out of order in Acts chapter 9. Because the chapter begins with Saul's mission. But I'm going to take you out of order to Ananias' mission. Because Ananias wasn't privy to Acts 9 verse 1 through 9 when it hit him in verse 10. He didn't know what was going on. So I wanna take it to you historically so that you can encounter what it was that Ananias encountered. So Ananias's mission. Ananias is an early disciple of Jesus who lived in Damascus. Uh, he was a Jewish man like Jesus and the apostles because the gospel was to spread through the God of Israel and his covenants to, uh, to Abram and, and, and his descendants. And there the gospel would move from Jerusalem in a Jewish context out to Judea and Samaria and to all the peoples of the world. Ananias is a Jewish man. He's living in the city of Damascus. In fact, today there is a chapel that is bearing the name of Ananias. So uh, historically we believe this to believe, be this picture that is in front of you right now, uh, a, a look of his original home. You kind of do an MTV Cribs or whatever and deck it out, you know. But this is, uh, this is what, where his home was originally located. So as we're in Acts 9, you can kind of picture this and and picture this scene that I'm about to put before you next on your outline as you see Ananias receives a vision from God. Verse 10 of Acts 9, let's look at this vision that Ananias receives. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, "Uh, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias to come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, Lord, I've heard about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I mean, you think about this scene. I'm taking you out of order because if you read the beginning of the, of the, of the chapter, you already see that, that Christ was on the move in Saul b- before he comes to Ananias, but Ananias isn't privy to this. You know, it, 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 the Lord comes to him and says, I want you to go visit Saul. You have to understand at this point, for those of you who have been around the church, you, you put two and two together. Saul is the Apostle Paul. Same guy, different names. Okay? Same guy, different names. In fact, in the early church, when people converted to Christianity, it was common for them to receive a Christian name because their lives were so radically different. You know, if you you go from Debo to Pastor Zach, you know what I mean? Like, like we we've got to change our name, you know, like something is different. We we just have to change your name. So Saul is the Apostle Paul. When he became a Christian, he received a Christian name, that was common practice. But at this point, our beloved Apostle Paul is not the Apostle Paul. This is not, this is, you know, this is Darth Vader. You know what I mean? This is this is bad stuff at this point. And he was a religious thug. He's a straight up religious thug. Saul of Tarsus is a religious thug. Religious because he's quite religious. In fact, he was a scholar of his day. He would receive received what would have been the equivalent of a PhD in an Ivy League. In his religion, he's a Jewish scholar. But he's a thug because he's, he's violent. He's a man of violence. He's a man of great power, of intelligence, and of violence. Kind of the last guy that you would want to have reigning in on your parade. You know what I mean? A smart, violent guy. You know, it's like, I'll take the guy who's smart, who's mad at me. I'll take the guy who's violent, who's mad at me, but the smart, violent guy, that's kind of a lethal combo. You know what I mean? Like he's smart, so I can't outwit him and he's violent, so I can't beat him up. You know, I'm host. He's a smart, violent guy. So that's Saul. And Saul has all of the cultural respectability to do what he wants. He belonged to a a group known as the Pharisees. And as Christians we, we hear Pharisee and a lot of times we look at that anachronistically. That is to say we often think of the Pharisees as sort of bad guys or whatever from a Christian vantage point. But from the first century you've got to understand the Pharisees were the heroes. In their communities they would meet in what was called the, the synagogue or what we in English just call the synagogue. And the synagogue was kind of like their YMCA. Which isn't Y or M or C anymore, right? Well, I don't know why people say, I'm going to the Y. Just say, you're going to the A. But anyway, so the YMCA is kind of a, a place in the culture where you go, you work out, there's mommy and me classes, people hang out there or whatever, and there's lots of activities going on there. Now, the synagogue was like that. They had activities going on during the week, classes for kids, uh, teach them Torah, ...practice your Hebrew, little soccer camp. And on you know, Sabbath, on Saturdays, they would have religious worship services. These were huge, particularly in between the Old Testament and New Testament. What's known as the intertestamental period. Uh, as they were without temple, the, the synagogues became very popular. And the Pharisees are basically the leaders of these synagogues. They had elders in these synagogues as well. And so this is very much what the New Testament church uh, becomes as, as sort of a prototype... Uh, Nevertheless, Paul is a part of these synagogues. He's a guy who people love. They don't look at him as a violent religious thug. They just look at him like, oh, you're crazy uncle, you know. And the people who he's beaten up, who he's violent towards, would be people who you would see as sort of schismatics or whatever. They don't have a separation of church and state. You understand that. So there's just no notion of there being a separation. So, you you know, if someone is saying something that you don't like in the church... you can beat him up. You know, it's a crazy world to live in. And so Saul is that guy. And God comes to Ananias. The risen Jesus comes in a vision to Ananias and says, I want you to go, I want you to go to Saul. I want you to go to Saul. Can you imagine what's going through Ananias' little pounding heart, you know? <laughs> Jesus, I know you're all knowing and stuff, but I'm just saying, in case you didn't know, I heard that he's going to go around and start jacking us, so... I know you know everything and you're all sovereign and stuff, but maybe you should rethink this, you know. This would not have been a fun mission. You look at verse 13. He's basically like, are you serious, Jesus? I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Ananias was scared. Ananias was fearful. And the Lord reassures him in verse 15, go. Look at verse 14. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel so that linchpin of Acts 1:8 is going to be expanding through the Apostle Paul as he goes before the Gentiles. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This must have been a total shocker. A total shocker. Ananias would not have wanted to do this. It would have been awesome if he was like, no. And then we got a Jonah story in the New Testament. It, you know, <laughs> another whale story. It would have been awesome in the New Testament. But he would not have wanted to do this. I was in Kentucky. I was at a big conference, the Together for the Gospel Conference. I was uh, uh, enjoying myself. My cell phone rang. Hope Chapel. What's up? It's Pastor Zach. Hey, can uh, you preach for me uh, this weekend or whatever? Yeah, sure. Awesome. All right. Catch you later. That's how I talk to Zach. you yeah, right. I'm like, oh, okay, sir. And uh, <laughs> so I hang up and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to preach on? Uh, there's 66 books in the Bible. There's all these verses and chapters. You know, what what am I uh, going to say to you people? Like, so I'm praying about this and I'm asking, you, you know, the Lord, you know, and I'm reading scripture and I'm thinking about you guys and uh, talking to some of you who attend here and just kind of thinking about, you know, what what message would God have for you from the text of his word to share and I was drawn to Acts chapter 9 because I was drawn to Ananias because I was thinking about this the fear of man and how the fear of man stops us from bringing the gospel and doing God's work and how Jesus comes to Ananias and and tells him he has mission that the gospel is spreading and is changing the hearts of of radical, depraved, uh, wicked people and that God was going to use him to this end. It is my concern in our day that many a Christian in the church have such fear of men that they do not bear witness to the gospel. They do not bear witness to the gospel. And it's not because they're worried that Saul might kill them. It's they're worried that they might not like me. They might say something on my Facebook. They, they might say no. God forbid they say No. You know, they, 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 they might, you know, not want to be my friend. They might think I'm weird. They might, you know, oh, they might just not like me. And so the church of Jesus Christ in the affluency of Western culture sits silent out of the fear of men. If you can't say amen, you have to say ouch. you got to give me something, you know. I came to Hope Chapel because there was an Ananias in my life who did not fear men. I was at work. I was working this job. I'm at work. There's a guy who works in a different department, and he would come by the desk where I was working all the time, and he'd talk to me, and he's all happy and stuff. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I was far from God. Ironically, I thought I knew God. I was raised in and around the church. I'll spare you all the details, but you know, I, w- I was living my life in in horrible rebellion against God. You you name it, I was doing it. You, you know, I okay. I don't wanna glory in that, but you get the point. Drugs, girls, all that stuff, I was doing it. And yet in the midst of all of that, I strangely somehow thought in my own self-righteousness and moralistic behavior that like, you know, I'm cool, I'm spiritual, I know Jesus. I was raised around the church, my parents, I said the prayer, you know, I'm good, I'm good. And so this guy comes up to me at work and he starts talking to me about Jesus. And I said, that's awesome. High five! I'm down with Jesus too, and he looks at me and says, "Then why do you live your life the way you live it?" What? I wanted to punch him in the mouth. And he just said it like almost with a grin and confident. I, he did have a grin and with confidence. And I thought, "You don't know me. What are you? You know." But he knew. I mean, it didn't take much to figure out my life. He said, "Come to church. We're doing this." Play, I'm in it, you gotta come see it. Ah, whatever, I'll go, weirdo, I'll go, you know. Uh, I'll I'll go, I'll go. Inside, I was being moved by God in recent weeks around this time. I was feeling a great sense of of guilt. I was feeling a great sense that Christ was real in my life. I would actually be dragged uh, to church on Sundays. I I would go with my dad, because if you live in my house, you go to church on Sunday, so all right, Whatever. Sit in the back, act like I'm praying, fall asleep. I would hear enough about Jesus, knew enough about Jesus to to, to feel not right. You know, I was kind of using Jesus, if anything, like fire insurance, like, "Eh, I don't want to go to hell. So I got a little Jesus in my life. But I was aware that the wrath of the Father hung over my head because I wasn't really living for him. I, I hadn't really, I wasn't. I wasn't really enamored with his grace. He wasn't my supreme treasure. The gospel hadn't fully penetrated my life. And, and all of that to say, I, I, I used to, I used to take showers. I used to take sho- I would feel guilty and I'd actually get inside of the shower and think, ah, oh, I feel better now. Thinking like I'm, I'm washing away my sin or something. And, and I would actually kind of, do things like that to sort of ease this conscience that was condemning me in a Romans 1 kind of way, as I knew I wasn't living for God. And, and, and so God's doing all of this, bringing conviction and weight of sin in my life, and, and all of this is going on. And this guy knows nothing about it, and he just walks up to me and says, Why are you living your life the way you're living it? Come to church. I was like, all right. So I drive. I'm from the west side, you know, other side of the tracks, all right? So it's a long drive. I'm like, what am I doing? This is crazy. I grew up in small churches. I never knew there was a big church. Like the biggest church I'd seen had like 50 people in it. They all had suits and they were mad at each other, you know? (laughs) And so that comb overs, you know, King James Bibles, it was crazy. So uh, that's what I thought. And then I get here. I'm like, this is big. What is this? The sign's all neon and weird. And People are wearing flip-flops. What's wrong with them? Look at all these Hawaiian shirts. This is crazy. Whatever, I'll sit down. Play begins. And it was all about people who were living their their lives in various rebellions against God. And it was like whoever wrote the play wrote it about me. And uh, and I was such a narcissist, I would think that too. But uh, (laughs) he wrote it for me. And I felt the weight of my sin. The preacher gets up. He talks about the gospel. He starts calling people to the gospel. As he was doing it, I was thinking, but I know Jesus. And then he starts talking about people who think they know Jesus and they probably don't. And I'm like, oh, that's me. And before I knew what my feet were doing, I was on this stage approximately right here. Fifteen years ago, approximately right here, I was down this aisle right here. I walked up on this stage. I literally collapsed on my knees crying and feeling the shower I had never experienced before as Christ lifted the guilt over me. I was floored. I was floored. And 15 years ago to think that all of that, because there was a guy who wasn't afraid to say, you're not living your life right. You need to come to church. His name is Patrick Short. Some of you know him. Most don't know him. He doesn't go to my church. None of my friends know him. He's kind of an Ananias. You know, Ananias disappears from Acts. He gets a little footnote around chapter 22. But, I mean, he's gone. You know what I mean? And, and Saul becomes the Apostle Paul and all the limelight. And you think of all of this and you go, you understand there would be no Apostle Paul if there wasn't an Ananias who, under the grace of God followed after Christ, and goes to him, and ministers to him, and, and does this work that he was called to do in Acts chapter 9. I'm reading the passage out of order so that you get the weight of this, because many people, we read about the Apostle Paul, and we go, oh, I'm not that guy. He's an apostle after all. I mean, I'm not an apostle. I mean, you know, but we're all is and there's not a person in this room who's 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 sort of uh, you know, less than Patrick Short. I love the guy. He came on Friday night. I made him stand up, do a little spin for everybody. I mean, like, he is my hero. Because he wasn't afraid of me. He would come up to me and he would offend me with the gospel. And he would actually invite me to a church that would be faithful. In that and I thought of all the places to go in the Bible it would be there to urge this church to say I don't know what's going on because it's been a long time since I was here but when it all began for me I was on my knees and it all happened because there was a dude like Ananias who didn't fear men and he followed after Christ and he was faithful in the gospel and and furthermore this passage where it's going to take us is deep into the grace of God to see the power of, of God's gospel in the life of Saul and that was rugged and powerful for me as well. I I go to this passage not to compare myself to the Apostle Paul... compare myself to Saul. I get that. That's a good comparison. But to compare Patrick to Ananias... and to say to you that the spirit of Ananias... would be alive in this place... that Hope Chapel would fill these seats... and that the glory of the gospel would reign supreme in this place... and to the ends of the earth. That you would be faithful in that work... and you would continue in that. Ananias responds to, to, to God and ministers to Saul... Verse 17, he departed, he entered the house, laying his hands on him. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which he came, he sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Far more than giving him eyesight, he would receive the Holy Spirit. If you read through the book of Acts, you know the coming of the Spirit is significant theology in the book of Acts. Uh, The coming of the Spirit comes through the hands of the apostles to various people groups to show the expansion of the gospel. Here the apostle Paul would receive it not by the hands of an apostle but by the hands of Ananias showing that he is indeed authenticated by none other than Christ who commissions this laying on of hands specifically for this receiving of the spirit so that Paul is genuinely a man of God because he has received the spirit. Romans 8, 9 tells you that if you don't have the spirit that you're, you're, you're not a Christian. There is no such thing as an unfilled Christian. We've all received the spirit. Paul Paul, Saul, becomes a Christian in this moment. He has, he has come to Christ. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, he rose, and he was baptized. As a Christian, he indicates that the inward reality of his heart has been washed from the stain of sin, and so he takes on the ordinance of baptism to indicate that reality. Now let's move backwards to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 and look at Saul's mission. As as I already described to you, he's a Pharisee. He's a community leader. I told you about the synagogues and stuff. Saul, as you see on your outline, zealously hated Christianity. Verse 1 of chapter 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Still, underline that, still. This is taking you back to chapter 8, verse 3. Where you see him on this campaign of zealous hatred towards Christians. Just a few verses before, at the end of chapter 7, you see him... At the stoning of Stephen, Stephen the Christian going around preaching the gospel, uh, Saul is there just excited to watch Stephen get killed. He hated the church. He loved to watch Christians be tortured. Next on your outline, Saul began a murderous campaign to halt the gospel. He hated Christianity and now he moves to halt the gospel. Can I just say that's not a good idea? You know, that's that, it's bringing a water gun to a, to a gunfight. I mean, you know... You know <laughs> You know, you you can't beat, the the gospel's unstoppable. For Pete's sake, of all the things in your life to try and halt, you know, not a good idea. Verse two, he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The early Christians, they were Jewish and so many of them were gathering in the synagogues, still a part of that community. Christians would hold worship services in the synagogue buildings and so Paul Saul is uh, aiming to go to these synagogues and capture these Christians. He is on such a murderous campaign to halt the gospel. He has such hatred for Christianity that he is willing to go 150 miles to do this. This is, you know, before Nike Air Max. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's no Harachis. There's no, you know, like, this is, a, this is a crazy hike. You know what I mean? This is a long walk through Yosemite. This is, this is serious business. As you look at the map and you... You see, I mean, he, he's, he's zealous in his campaign. In spite of all of his great learning, he is spiritually blind. In spite of all of his great learning, he cannot hear. One of the things that I love about this church, and I'm always floored at when I'm here, is, is to have the translation going on. To know that in the audience there are people who cannot hear uh, physically, but there are people who hear spiritually. And to know that there may be someone who was brought here today by a friend who's, who's not a believer and you're just trying to get that crazy Christian off your back so you're like, whatever, I'll go. And to know that there's people in this place who hear but don't hear. There's people in this place who, who hear, who can't hear but hear. I mean, that's, just, that's, that, that's powerful to me to think of that right now. That there's brothers and sisters in this room who cannot hear my voice but they hear the voice of their father in the word of God. Saul can't hear. He can't see. It's interesting that his affliction would would impact his eyes as well. It's it's fascinating that in Christ's coming to Saul in this this powerful way, we're even drawn back to his zealous campaign of hatred against Christianity. Who was the last person to see the risen Christ? Stephen. Earlier in Acts, as he was being stoned, he has a vision of the risen Christ. And the next person to see him will be Saul. Now let's look at Christ's mission. We've looked at Ananias' mission. We've looked at Saul's mission. Let's look at Christ's mission. The mission of Christ is the gospel. Christ died for sinners. Christ comes to Saul. He didn't wait for Saul to come to him. He didn't wait for Saul to start saying the sinner's prayer to pour his grace on him. He didn't wait for Saul to go to the evangelistic meeting. He didn't wait for Saul to have a change of heart. Saul was on his way to kill Christians and Jesus shows up and gives him new life. Saul was on a campaign to kill and Jesus is on a campaign to give life. The risen on your outline and ascended Christ confronts Saul. Verse 3. Now when he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You can imagine the scene. You can imagine the scene. Bright light. This is the Middle East. It's the middle of the day. I mean, it's, it's light is all get up. It's hot. The sun is out. Beating on your back. And here Christ shows up and his light is greater than the sun. The scriptures describe God in, in, in the radiance of light often. Psalm 104 verse 2 says that God wraps himself in light as with a garment. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 16 says that God lives in unapproachable light. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 says that God is a consuming fire. The consuming fire has showed up on the scene. And the Middle East is bright, but not brighter than the Son of God. And he comes to Saul. Of anyone on the planet who doesn't deserve Jesus to show up to him, Jesus shows up to him. And Jesus is not playing games. Verse 5, who are you, Lord, Saul says. Lord, kurios is a term of respect. At this point, he does, he's not using kurios in the sense of Lord God, but just to say respectfully, like, oh, snap, what's going on here? You know, what sort of demonic power is this? Was is, is this some tech show? I mean, what's going on here? Verse 6. Jesus doesn't even get all into it. He just says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Verse 6, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You're under a new master now, buddy. This, this, uh, your mission, done. It's it's over. I tell you what, here's how it's going down. You're going to go to the city and uh, you'll be told what you're going to do. You'll be told what you're going to do. I love this about Jesus. He tells his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That's how he rolls. He goes down to the docks. He sees the guys fishing. He says, hey, follow me. And they're like dropping their nets. All right, did we just quit our jobs? What's going on? My gosh, my mom's going to kill me. Yeah, seriously. He better be God. What just happened to us? What just happened to us? What just happened to Saul? What just happened to me? Sitting in a chair in this place, brought to my knees. What happened to you? That's our story. What happened to us is Christ. He gets all the glory. Saul says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. He doesn't say, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm Jesus. And I was wondering if uh, you'd read this track and kind of think about me, you know, maybe I'll call you tomorrow, I'll follow up. I was thinking, you know, maybe I'd disciple you if you're okay with that, you know. Uh, I got this Bible study on Wednesday night, so I was thinking maybe you could come to it. I know you got this whole campaign thing you're doing in the synagogues and stuff. I was Wondering if maybe you would entertain not doing that, you know, no. Boom, done, new orders, go to the city, you're mine now, new heart, you're saved. Did Saul deserve it? Did you deserve it? The calling of Christ irresistibly converts Saul. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. You have on the back of your outline a, a, a harmony of Acts. I know you guys are doing a harmony of the Gospels. We have harmonies of epistles as well, which are kind of awesome. And in the book of Acts, I've given this to you to study because it gives you a further explanation to the phenomenon that the group experienced and, and Saul and how it all harmonizes together. That's just there for you uh, later. But I want to take you back into the text, verse 8. Uh, Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He's led by the hand into Damascus. The raging monster has become a docile lamb led by the hand. Love it. For three days without sight, he neither eats nor drinks. Verse 19, you skip forward to verse 19 because we already saw the Ananias account. Now he's taking food. Now he's strengthened. Verse 20, immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. The persecutor has become a preacher. Imagine that. The miracle isn't that, oh, he was blind and now he sees. The miracle is that in his heart he now sees. He's been given a new heart. He's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Ah. Verse 21, all who heard him, they were amazed. Uh, The Greek there, extensio, it means uh, literally standing by themselves. They're like, wait, hold up. You know, um, look at what it says, verse 21. Is this not the man who was going to wreak havoc in Jerusalem and he was, you know, for people who were calling on the name and now he's here and uh, he was going to do the thing with the chief priest, verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Remember what I showed you in in Acts 1-3, that word proving, that's what it's about. This isn't, oh, just believe in Jesus, you know, Believe in Jesus, he'll make you happy. Like he's Advil or something, you know. No, no he's, he's actually proving himself. He's a, this is actually real. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't take him out for a spin and you'll feel better. This is real stuff here. They're astonished. They, they, they can't believe this. Verse 23, it says, when many days have passed, now they turn and the Jews are plotting to kill him. And they, their plot became known to, to Saul. And they're watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. You imagine, you imagine that the bounty hunter has turned into the fugitive. The, 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 his whole, his whole group, the whole community he's a part of has now turned on him. There's many people who go, oh, i, I become a Christian. I mean, i am gonna lose friends. Yeah, whatever. Get over it. Are you serious? They're, they're not going to be verse 23 trying to kill you, staring at your gates of your house day and night. Get over it. This is powerful stuff. And speaking of powerful stuff, I want to wrap it up for you with some concluding uh, theological truths that are timeless to apply to you. You see on your outline the timeless truth. I want to talk to you about Jesus, you and the gospel. And I want to begin with Jesus in my application of this text because the Bible is about Jesus. Wow, insert amen. The Bible is about Jesus. It's all about him. American Christianity is struggling with an infection, a gangrene of narcissism. We come to the text of the Bible with a mirror, trying to see ourselves in it all the time, just primping and just looking at ourselves when we come to the text of scripture. But the text of scripture is not about me. It's about Jesus. That's what it's about. This is not about your best life now for Pete's sake. It's not about you. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. And if we don't get this, we will tolerate bad preaching. We will read our Bibles incorrectly. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus, he's in the boat, waters are raging. He calms the storm, rebukes the wind. And the preacher says, Jesus, he'll calm the storms of your life. What are you going through right now? Are you sad? Jesus will calm those winds for you. And the passage becomes all about you. It's not about you. It's not about your storms. For Pete's sake, read the Bible literally as it was intended to be read. The passage is about Jesus. The passage is about how he's God, how he controls the weather. We should read the passage and it's not about what I'm going through. It's about, oh snap, Jesus is God. The guy who controls the weather, God. The one who created the world, God has shown up and he's incarnate, and he's living among sinners. And in that passage, you see him rebuking the winds. Well, Jesus rebukes demons. Why is he rebuking winds? And then when he gets to the other side of the shore, you see demons there who are waiting for him going, what are you doing here? Oh, this is a demonic encounter. This is not only that he's God, but he's God over nature. He's God over the darkness. He goes to the other side. He rebukes the winds. Then he rebukes the demons. He's more powerful than the darkness. The passage is about Jesus. His power over darkness. He's God in the flesh. Whoa, that's what it's about. It's not about me. It's not about me. David and Goliath. David and Goliath, slay your giants. Here's five steps. Are you serious? It's about slaying my giants. Here's five stones, you know. Get out of here with that. It's about the power of God. The power of God and God's covenant faithfulness to Israel that he wouldn't let enemies come against them and win. It's about the faithfulness of our God. That's what it's about. And and, and then it foreshadows for us the Christ who will sit on the throne of David who will reign supreme over all. It's about Jesus. That's what it's about. I'm doing like mini sermons. I got to stop. But (laughs) Acts 9 is about Jesus too. And so we begin with Jesus. Jesus takes personal offense at the treatment of his bride in Acts 9. Do you look at verse 5? He says, why are you persecuting me? He says, why are you being so mean to all the Christians? Leave them alone. He says, why are you persecuting me? Saul Saul is given a glimpse into the great doctrine that he would write in his epistles of what it means to be in Christ. Jesus identifies himself with the one whom Saul is persecuting. This is filled with amazing theological significance for us as we think about the union of Christ and his church. Jesus isn't saying, why are you persecuting my church? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? Because the church is identified with him. We are in him as he is in the Father. Why are you persecuting me? St. Augustine in the ancient church said of this passage... ...it was the head in heaven crying out on behalf of the members that were still on earth. You've read in the Bible that he's a sympathetic high priest. He really is sympathetic. He takes it personally. We are his body. When we hurt, the Lord feels it because it's about Jesus and his sympathy... ...and us being in him. Now the context of the passage is specifically about persecution... But I can't help but to make a parenthetical application for us as a church. You know, Christians are known for not always getting along with each other. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure some in the room struggle with gossip, you know, uh, myself included. Divisiveness, you know, we can be divisive in the church. I don't like that. I don't like that sermon. Oh, i glad you're, uh, you know, we, we can be divisive. We can be mean to each other. We can hurt each other. You've been around the church long enough, you've been hurt by someone who's a Christian that Jesus is personally involved in the way that we treat each other because he cares about how his body is treated. We are his body, the Bible tells us. We are his body. We are in him. Those of you who are married to a Christian, the way that you treat your spouse, this is a personal thing for Jesus. You, you go into Ephesians 5 and you see this parallel, of course, with, with marriage and Christ in the church. This is a very personal thing for him. The way you treat your spouse, it's a personal thing for him. Would you treat Christ that way? You're thinking, dang it, my husband's on men's retreat. I want to elbow him, you know what I mean? But, you know, elbow him when he gets back and he'll elbow you. And you guys realize that when you elbow each other, there's a sense in which you're elbowing Christ. But this passage in its context is about persecution. And so it tells us that in the midst of our fear of men and wondering about, oh, if I share the gospel and they don't like me, we realize that ultimately it's not about us, it's about Jesus. Number two there, Jesus is powerful in transforming the human heart. So when you're worried about sharing the gospel with someone... ...oh, they'll never believe. Are you kidding me? Have you looked at Saul? He was about to go kill Christians and now he's preaching to them. This shows us the power of, of the gospel. It really is powerful. Number two, you. How might we apply this to ourselves? Well, first of all, let's think about Ananias. Let him be our character to parallel of our own lives... God uses the anonymous to do his bidding for his glory. Amen? Amen? Who is Ananias? He's the nameless guy. He disappears from the stories. People name their kids Paul. I've never met an Ananias. I haven't. I, I don't know any Ananias. Maybe there's one in the room who's going to be like, I'm an Ananias, what's up? But you know, you know what I mean? Like His name's in the book of life. He's a hero in heaven. God uses him. There are people in your life who you can say, hey, Uh, Why are you living your life the way you're living it? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Hey, come to church. Everyone in this room can pull a Patrick short on that guy at work the way he did for me. And I think about it and I look at this and I'm just, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely, I'll never get over it. At least by the grace of God, I won't ever get over it what Patrick did in my life. We named our daughter, my daughter's middle name is Hope because we don't ever want to forget what God did at Hope in being gracious to us and drawing me to this place. And not only did he bring the gospel to my heart through this nameless guy, but in this place, God just poured grace over grace over grace upon me. I met my wife here. I met my wife here. Here's a picture of my, of my family. I've got five kids, the fifth one's in, in the burner. I got the dog in the picture. I mean, the whole thing. Like when I look at, when I look at my kids, this, this picture wouldn't exist. This would be a back to the future moment, pictures disappearing kind of thing, Michael J. Fox. you know, This picture would not exist if Patrick Short did not come up to me and say, why are you living your life the way you're living it? And the irony of the father in his grace, you know, the, the time that I first saw my wife was actually on one of these uh, projectors up here. She's doing missions for some Africa thing that Hope Chapel was doing, and I saw a picture of her. The little ponytails, looking all goofy. And I was like, who's that girl? Where can I find her? She's awesome. And uh, had a crush on her, thought she was great. And now she's in a slide 15 years later in front of you. And I'm telling you about how powerful God moves in the gospel and his grace to lavish things on us that we just don't deserve. And it's because Patrick Short, you can, yeah, clapping's fine. I'm good with that, you know. It's because Patrick Short was faithful to God and just said, hey man, let's talk about Jesus. And what I want you to understand is that there is the church that I minister into in in Los Angeles, we're seeing revivals by the grace of God. Here's a picture of our church. They're meeting right now. They're worshiping Jesus right now. There's people coming to Christ because Patrick Short shared with a punk kid about the grace of God. Because this church preached the gospel and, and the gospel's powerful. There are people right now Sunday morning in the underground in the Middle East who tune in to my home church at Delray Church who are in Arab countries that don't have churches but watch the service feed live and hear the gospel. There are people coming to Christ in Germany, in the Middle East, in London because Patrick Short said to a kid at work, why are you living your life the way you're living it? You just don't know, Hope Chapel, the impact that you can have in people's lives simply by saying the name of Jesus. That J word, you know, the gospel. Oh, you're so narrow-minded. You're always imposing your religion on other people, you know, right? Don't be marginalized. The people who say it's not okay for you to impose your ideas on others, just say, well, so do you think I'm wrong? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, why are you imposing on me that it's wrong for me to impose on you? I mean, let's just all stop imposing then. I mean, this is just <laughs> nonsense. Share the gospel. There was a, a, a dumb ancient Satan who once said, share the gospel and when necessary, use words. St. Francis of Sissi, it's attributed to. That's ridiculous. You have to use words. It's gospel. Evangelion, it means good news. You have to share the news. When you turn on Channel 4 to see the news... If the guy's doing a pantomime, you know, I'm just showing the news. He'd be like, what? No, you have to tell it. The point at hand is that God uses the anonymous to do his bidding. Ananias is anonymous. Patrick Short is anonymous. People don't know his name. And yet the work that he did has eternal impact. There will be hundreds, if not thousands, in heaven who stand around Patrick Short and say thank you. You've heard of Billy Graham? Have you heard of Edward Kimball? In 1854, he went to a, there was a shoe shiner, Edward Kimball. He goes into a 17 year old boy who was living his life uh, 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 very, very, very rebellious against God. And Edward Kimball goes into this 17 year old boy who's a shoe shiner, goes to his job and says, I'm worried about you, I want to talk. And so they go into the basement of the shoe store and Edward Kimball led that little boy to Christ. And that boy was D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody, the shoeshiner, turned into the great evangelist who started Moody Bible Institute, Moody Memorial Church in Chicago that are both still thriving today. Moody goes on to influence a man named F.B. Meyer, a London pastor and intellectual who didn't believe in Jesus, but Moody leads him to the Savior, preaching a sermon, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Meyer goes on to influence uh, J. Wilbur Chapman, who influences Billy Sunday, who influences Mordecai Hamm, and Mordecai Ham leads Billy Graham to Christ, the power of the gospel through the anonymous person. We got to get over the Western narcissistic culture. It's how, how many shows do we have, American Idol, get on the stage, sing, you know, and, and then the goal of the Christian life is like, I want to be the guy on the pulpit. No, don't do that. Just be Patrick Short and tell people about Jesus. God uses the available, next point, to be on mission with him and impacting the nations with the gospel. Be available. Be anonymous. It's a good thing. Lastly, the gospel, the good news that we must share. The salvation of Saul displays itself in the joy of suffering. Verse 15, he will be my chosen instrument to bear my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The scriptures tell us, that as Christ Christ is at work in us, he will bring us in this kind of life that he's our master, we're not above him. You understand that he suffered, we will suffer, and the glory of the gospel will be showed in this. And so Saul's life, as we see, this wasn't like easy street kind of thing. He lived a hard life. It was not your best life now for him. The best life is yet to come when Christ returns. This is the gospel. The salvation, lastly, of Saul demonstrates God's unconditional grace for sinners. As I emphasized to you already, it was all Jesus and not Saul. Saul was not on his way thinking, maybe I should believe in Jesus. I don't know. Oh, I've been reading this, you know, more than a carpenter book. I'm kind of thinking about it. No, he's, he's far from it, and Christ comes to him. There's an old story of a little boy in Sunday school the teacher asked this little boy what part he played in his salvation. Uh, the little boy told the Sunday school teacher, well, I, I uh, you know, I, 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 I played a part in my own conversion. I played a part and God played a part. And the Sunday school teacher was a little bit nervous by his answer. You played a part and God played a part. Oh, okay, well, explain what you mean by that little boy. And the little boy says, well, my part was to oppose God with everything I had. And his part was to save me with everything he had. Friends, that's the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So beloved, as, as one who has been deeply impacted by this church, I want to encourage you to remain on mission. I uh, remain on the outskirts of your church as a partner in the gospel. Uh, I don't know all of the things that go on uh, in this place, but my admonition to you is whatever's going on here, I hope and pray that it was what was going on here 15 years ago when Christians were running around sharing the gospel with a bunch of down and outs. Because if you continue in that, you will continue to see great things and hear of good news from places in and around this city of what God is doing through, through anonymous people in your church for the glory of God. I have another brother here today who's in college group with me who's pastoring a church as well. And I you know just floored thinking about like God was just raising us up and preparing us for ministry. There are churches in this greater city in Southern California just by the work of anonymous people in this church. Continue in the spirit of Ananias, Hope Chapel. Continue. Let me pray for you. Father, all glory belongs to you. We are floored that you would send your son for us. As we close the service in song, we pray that the word on our mouths would ring in our hearts. And Father, I pray that you would create a holy restlessness in your people at Hope Chapel, that they would be eager to speak of Christ to those around them, that they would be eager to marvel in the gospel, not just as something they share, but something that absolutely captures them every day. The gospel is not the prayer we say to enter into covenant. It is the very thing that undergirds it all. It is not the door, it is the building. So, Lord God, we come before you just floored to be in the gospel. And we thank you for your grace we pray that you would just have your way with us this week. In the name of Christ, I ask this. Amen. Amen. Let's thank God for Matt. Brother Matt, amen. <clears throat> I'm going to close with one verse to our song. It's all good. We're a little long. No need to panic.